Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Good evening, everybody. Remember, I am going back to the Q&A that will immediately follow the end of tonight's live podcast. So if you've already signed up at Shift Radio Premium, then you're going to be able to participate. If you haven't signed up, I guess you could try to do so uh, in the next hour or so while you're listening to this podcast or maybe just when it comes to an end. You just got to go to shiftradio.com slash premium and sign up. You know, it's only five bucks a month. If you don't like it, you can cancel. I want to start off today's podcast, though, by talking a little politics. I want to enlist the help of the shift heads, and I want to make shift happen for a friend of mine who's running for president. His name is Larry Elder. And a lot of you might not know he's running for president because he's not getting a lot of press. But if you're a longtime listener of my podcast, in fact, if you listen to my daily radio show that I used to do uh, five days a week, a lot of times I would travel. And one of my most frequent guest hosts who would host my radio show was Larry Elder, because Larry Elder became famous hosting his own radio show out in Southern California, the Sage of South Central. And I was a fan of Larry Elder long before anybody was a fan of mine. In fact, you know, I used to drive home from work when I lived in Southern California, and I listened to Larry's show. It was on KABC, and I listened to him on the radio. Now, this is going way back, right, to, you know, the 19... I, I guess late '80s, uh, early '90s, whenever I, you know, I was listening to him on, on the radio. But I would get home, and oftentimes I'd stay in my car, you know, parked because I didn't want to stop listening to Larry. I'd be there like another half hour or something. So he really uh, made the drive home and traffic a lot more enjoyable because I got to listen uh, to Larry. And of all the people who are running for the Republican nomination. In my opinion, he is the best one for the job. I mean, if you can't have Peter Schiff of the field that's there, Larry Elder would be the guy. Now, obviously it's a long shot, but you know, anything could happen. But the first thing is we got to get Larry into the debate. The first Republican debate is on Wednesday. And I'm certainly going to talk about that debate 
on my podcast. Now, the Republican National Committee has made it very difficult for candidates to get on the debate. So in order to qualify, you've got to poll at least 1% in three national polls, and you have to collect donations from at least 40,000 people. Now, it doesn't say how much, so you could just give a dollar. In fact, there's one candidate out there that was paying people $10 to donate a dollar, right? <laughs> you know, figured it was cheaper than, than the advertisements. But Larry hasn't done that. Here's the deal with Larry Elder. He's already got 1% in one poll. There are two more polls. One comes out tonight, one tomorrow morning. He's pretty confident he's going to be 1% in those polls. But he's about 1,000 short. He's, he's collected donations from 39,000 people, including me. I, I just donated myself. But he's 1,000 short. And the deadline to get those votes is 6 p.m., or not votes, donations, <laughs> is 6 p.m., Eastern time tomorrow. And I want to put Larry over the top. I want him up on that debate stage with the other uh, seven candidates, I think, who have qualified. I think there's eight, but one of them is Donald Trump, and Trump's not going to be there. He's boycotting the debates. And, you know, I mean, from a strategy point, I don't blame him. He's so far ahead. And it's very unlikely that Larry Elder is going to beat Donald Trump. In fact, it's very unlikely that anybody is going to beat Donald Trump. So the main reason I want Larry up on that stage is I want his perspective, I want his voice, and I know he's going to dominate that debate, and I think it's going to raise his status in in the party. And maybe maybe he's got a shot at a VP with, with Trump. Who knows? And if Trump, something happens, if he has to drop out, I mean, it would be fantastic to see Larry Elder on the ticket anywhere. Obviously, I'd like to have him on top of the ticket. And of course, one of the best things about Larry Elder is he happens to be black. And, you know, what I like about that is that it, it makes it harder to play the race card against a black guy. I mean, it's, it's very difficult to call Larry Elder a racist when he says a lot of things that if you were white and you said those same things, they'd call you a racist. So it disarms uh, a lot of that. And you know, Donald Trump did very well with the black vote. You know, they want to say he's a racist, but he actually got more black votes than any other Republican who ran, including when he ran, you know, the second time and, and, and theoretically lost. But I think if Larry Elder were on the ticket, they'd get even more of the African-American vote. In fact, they might get so much of it that it would be impossible for Joe Biden or any Democrat to win because they got to get, you know, 90% of that vote to win a lot of these cities, which you know puts them over the top. So I'd love to see him up there. And who knows, you know, anything could happen. You know, I mean, uh, the Democrats, you know, nominated a black guy, Barack Obama, he became president, you know. So maybe uh, uh, the Republicans would do the same thing, but it would be great to see this happen. But also personally, as a favor to me, you know, I would like to see, how much, you know, clout we have. I mean, I got a big audience. I mean, almost 200,000 people listen to this podcast. You know, I mean, it should be easy to get 1,000 people. You know, one of the reasons I did really well in my Senate campaign, I mean, not well enough to win, but I had a lot of people who volunteered and helped me. People were making phone calls. And, you know, about maybe a week or two before my Senate election, this is back in 2010, 
I was only polling at about 3%. And I got no media coverage in Connecticut. Everybody ignored me. There was Rob Simmons. There was uh, Linda McMahon, who won. Um, but nobody paid attention to my campaign. But I ended up getting more than 20% of the vote when I was at polling at 3%. And that big push that I had at the end, I think was because of all the people who were making phone calls on my behalf in that in that Senate campaign. And maybe if we had got started earlier with that phone call campaign, you know, a lot of people came up to me after I, the race and they said, you know, Peter, I would have voted for you, but I didn't think you had a shot, you know, because you were polling 3%. So I didn't want to waste my vote. I wanted to vote either against Linda McMahon or against Rob Simmons. That's what people were doing. But the people who voted for me were voting for me, not against somebody else. And so I think if I was polling at 20% or something, and people knew that, they would have they voted for me, and maybe I, I'd have won. Who knows if I'd have beat Blumenthal in the race. That would have been difficult, but, but you never know. But what I want to do, even as a litmus test, because a lot of people who watch this podcast want me to run for office someday. Maybe I will. But if I am going to run, I'm going to need the help of my my, uh, you know, audience, my fan base, because without without you guys, there's no way I don't have a shot. So I need an army of, you know, shift heads. But right now, I'd like to kind of test the, the, the power of my army by seeing if I can marshal up the troops in, in favor of, of Larry Elder. So I'm going to watch very closely. After this podcast tomorrow morning, I'm going to see how many donations. I like to get way more than a thousand. I like to get ten thousand donations. In fact, I'd like every single person who listens to my podcast to give Larry Elder at least a dollar. I mean, you can give him more than a dollar, right? I mean, you know, you give five dollars, ten dollars, but at least give him a dollar. And you know, when you sign up, it's very easy. Here's his website. It's on on a screen. You just click donate. It asks you, you know, put in a buck. I did a buck just so I can, you know, do what I'm asking you to do. And then it says, do you want to pay four cents extra, you know, to cover the, you know, the, the, the processing costs? You don't have to do that. I, I wasn't sure. But they told me you don't even have to do that to qualify. Just donate a buck. If you want to do the extra four cents, fine. But donate a buck. Just give them, a, you know, your credit card information. It takes a minute or two and you're done. Right? I'd like to see everybody who listens to my podcast donate a dollar to Larry Yoder, because then we could get 100,000 people, I mean, more, and just really, uh, you know, make a splash, uh, because he didn't have to buy any of these votes, right, like some of these other candidates. So I think it would make it hard to ignore him. But I also, it would demonstrate that I've got some kind of political power. If, if, if you guys want me to have a voice in Washington, and clearly I could have a voice if Larry Elder was, was in the White House somewhere, uh, then do this. Let's show people that I do have some political clout. I can help a guy like Larry Elder get the donations that he needs in order to get into those debates. Because you know the uh, Republicans don't want him. For whatever reason, they don't want to include him in this debate because they made it harder uh, for him to uh, uh, get on the stage. So let's, let's make sure uh, that he's up on that stage in a big way with a big rush of donations. So again, just go to LarryElder.com and for me, if you're even if you're not doing it for Larry, do it for me. But he's a great guy and uh, he'd be great for the country. He'd be a great president. He'd be a great vice president. 
probably the best one of my lifetime if he were to get elected. You know, now it's hard for a guy that good to actually get elected, but uh, he can't do anything without our help. And we got to get him up on that stage uh, on Wednesday. And if you if you do this, do it for me, do it for Larry, do it for the country, then you'll be able to see uh, him up on the debate and realize that you're the reason that he's there. Now, I won't be able to vote for Larry, though I could vote for him in the primary. I forgot about that. Puerto Ricans can vote in the primary. We can't vote in the general election. But I think this is the best thing I can do uh, for the country uh, and for him and to try to demonstrate this. If, if this works out, if I see my my guys, my fans, guys and gals, if you guys really come through here, then that'll give me some confidence that maybe I'll be able to run for office myself one day. Anyway, that's it. Uh, I got a quick commercial. We'll come back for the rest of the podcast. So don't go away. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Okay, so the big story of the week, I think, is the market itself. The continues decline in the major stock market averages. It was actually the third consecutive losing week for the S&P and the Dow. That's the biggest losing streak since February. The NASDAQ, though, was also down for three consecutive weeks. That hasn't happened at all this year. The last time that happened was in December of last year. The banks also get beat up on the week uh, three weeks in a row now for the regional banks going down. And, you know, it was four weeks ago that I did my podcast where the title of my podcast was uh, Did the AI-Fueled NASDAQ Bubble Just Pop? So I almost nailed the very top of the market. Now, of course, I did end it with a question mark. So I can't really claim credit like, yeah, I emphatically called the top because then I would have ended it with a period or an explanation point. So I kind of covered my my butt a little bit by putting a question mark at the end. But at least I was right to question whether we had seen a top because what I saw looked suspicious to me that maybe there was a top because I've been expecting one for the reason of rising bond yields. I mean, that was what I thought was the most significant fact that stock investors were overlooking was the carnage that I saw in the bond market and that I thought would continue. And I nailed that perfectly because bonds were down now for the fifth consecutive week. So the fifth week in a row where bond yields have risen. And that's why now for three of those five weeks, the stock market has followed the bond market lower, which is what I thought was likely to happen. Now, I'm still very bearish on bonds. I don't think we're close to the bottom of this bear market. Remember, I talked on that podcast even four weeks ago when I was warning about the potential sell-off in the stock market, that there were a lot of bond bulls that I thought were going to get you know, taken out and shot. You know, I talked about Jeff Gunlock and a lot of other big bond guys that were saying, buy the 10-year, you know, we're going to get a rally. 
there were a lot of speculators trying to pick the bottom of that market. And I said, you know, they're going to get burned. They're on the wrong side of this trade. Uh, this bond bear has got a long way to go. I mean, this is a, a secular. It's not cyclical. This, I believe, is a secular bear market that's going to be here for decades, just like the secular bull market was here for decades. We had a bull market in bonds from 1981 to 2020, 2021, like a 40-year bull market. It's over. And it ended with a bang, you know, during COVID with, you know, yields going down below 1%, right, for those uh, maturities. And that was it. And I actually called that top in real time. I didn't even put a question mark there. I said, this is it. The bond bull is over. This is the blowout top of that, you know, 40-year bull market. And I, I was right on that. Um, but the yields are continuing to rise. And so I think they're going to keep rising. And so that means that the pressure on the stock market is going to continue. In fact, the decline so far, I, I jotted them down. So the Dow is only down 3.3% from the peak. So that index has held up. Of course, it didn't go up quite as much. The S&P is down 5.2% now during those three weeks. The Russell 2000 is down 7.4%, much more substantial, right? I think we need 10% to be in correction territory, so we're not quite there. And the NASDAQ is down 7.7%. Now, if you look at the more speculative stocks, or that's not the NASDAQ, that's the NASDAQ 100. I, I didn't write, write down the overall NASDAQ. Um, Look at the Kathy Wood, ARK Innovation ETF. It's down 21.3%. It's already gone through correction territory into bear market, ter bear market territory. Now, of course, I mean, this is a very volatile fund. So, you know, maybe it's not as significant as the entire market, but it still gives you an indication on what's happening. By the way, you Bitcoin bugs, uh, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust is now down 20.5% from its peak. So that's bear market territory. Bitcoin itself is not down quite as much. I think it's down about 17.5%. The high it got to is around 31,500-ish, approximately. And as I'm recording this podcast Sunday night, we're barely holding on to a 26 handle. We're around 26,100. We have traded 25,000 and change. So I think there's a lot of room to fall. But this is what's going on with risk assets. They are going down right now, led lower, I think, by crypto-related assets. But all the risk assets are going down. But everything has been going down. Look, gold's down too. Gold's down from its highs about 8% from the high that it touched in the last year. We're right now just below 1900 I mean, 1890-ish or something like that. But gold is still holding up pretty well recently. It hasn't gone down that much recently. Gold stocks, again, from their 52-week highs are down in bear market territory. They're down about 24% if you look at the, the GDX, GDXJ. But I think that you're going to see a break from gold and bonds. Now, part of that is the dollar. You know, I said that uh, bond yields um, rose for five weeks in a row. Well, the dollar rose for five weeks in a row as well. The dollar is going up with bond yields, but that's not what should be happening. 
And eventually, this is going to decouple. I think that you're going to see the dollar and bonds falling together. Because the real reason that bonds are weak is because inflation is strong and going to get stronger. See, right now, people still look at the inflation data and the fact that it's stubbornly high. And the Fed is now concerned that it might re-rear its head as if its head ever disappeared. But, you know, they were talking about inflation coming down. It went down from nine to three, but now it looks like it's going back up. And, and so the markets are looking at the resurgence in inflation and their conclusion is, okay, the Fed's just going to have to fight a little harder to win this battle. It's going to have to raise rates a little more and keep them higher for longer. And that mentality has been propping up the dollar and uh, suppressing gold. Now, the dollar hasn't made a new high. Gold hasn't made a new low. Uh, but it has keeping a bid in the dollar and it's, and it's you know, keeping pressure on gold. But eventually, as I've been saying, investors are going to have to realize that inflation sticking around longer than people thought, the fact that they can't slay this beast, this is not an indication that the Fed just has to has to fight harder to win. No, what we're seeing is proof that the Fed has already lost inflation won. The Fed can't possibly raise rates high enough to reduce inflation without crippling the economy, without creating a worse financial crisis than 2008. This fantasy, though, is still out there in the market. But at some point, uh, the investors are going to be confronted with reality. And that reality is those days of really low inflation, they're gone. We're not going back to 2%, not even close. Uh, we're going to be much higher. And that's why you're going to see a much bigger backup in bond yields. For example, if you look at the yields right now, and I got them up here, the, the three-month Treasury bill is yielded 5.4%. But the 10-year is 4.3. The 10-year is over 100 basis points lower than the 90-day. That's not normal. Historically, if you've got you know 5.4% treasury bills, a 10-year is going to be six, maybe more, and a 30-year, maybe seven. Normally, you have a positively sloping yield curve because of the added risk. There's a lot more risk when you loan the government money for 10 years or 30 years than for 90 days. I mean, how much can go wrong in 90 days? I mean, eventually, a lot will go wrong in 90 days. But clearly, there's a lot more time for stuff to go wrong in 10 years and certainly in 30 years. So all of that potential for something bad to happen, you needs to be priced in. You need to get paid more to take 30 years of risk versus 90 days of risk or even, you know. So what's happening now is atypical. So why is it that the 10-year or longer maturities are so low? Because everybody is under the false belief that these high rates, this 5% plus rate, is just temporary. That we're going to go right back 
to one or two or something like that, or maybe zero, who knows? And so people are willing to buy the 10-year or the 30-year at such a discount to what they could get. Because why do that? If you could get 5.4 on a 90-day bill, what the hell are you doing fooling around with a 10-year treasury that yields less? Why are you taking all this risk and getting paid less? Because they are speculating. The people buying the long end of the yield curve, right? like a Jeff Gunlock, these guys are speculating. They're betting that the Fed is going to cut rates in the short end. And so your ability to get 5% in a 90-day is going to go away. That those rates are going to go down to 4 or 3 or 2. And now they're going to look like geniuses because they're going to be clipping coupons at 4.3. And everybody else is going to be stuck with these low rates. Well, what if it doesn't go down that way? What if the Fed can't? lower interest rates, even if it wants to, because inflation doesn't go down. And in fact, it may start cutting rates and have to abort it because inflation takes off, because the minute they start cutting rates, the dollar falls through the floor, because I think it's getting ready to do that. I don't think there's any real support anymore, other than the talk about higher rates and the belief that the inflation genie is going back in that bottle. But when the reality uh, uh, sets in that that's not going to happen, that we're going to have historically high levels of inflation, the yield curve is going to normalize. In fact, it's going to be steeper than normal because inflation is going to be accelerating even faster than normal. So when we go back to those days, then if you have a 5.4% yield on a um, 90-day bill, then you're going to have. 6%, 7% or more. And we may not stop in the fives. The Fed may have to keep hiking short-term rates. There's a lot of risk uh, for rates going much higher than people think. Yes, the economy is going to uh, collapse or fall into recession. That's what all the bond bulls are betting on. They're betting that when the higher rates finally take their toll and create a recession, that the Fed is going to do what it's always done and cut rates. But what if inflation is not low? In fact, what if inflation is higher by the time we officially enter recession? In fact, what if it's higher inflation that is the catalyst to cause that recession? The Fed can't go and cut rates if inflation is the problem because cutting rates will make that problem worse, which will actually sedate the economy that the Fed is trying to stimulate. In other words, it's checkmate for the Fed, right? The game is over. It can't do this anymore. The only way it got away with this stimulus in the past was because it was able to pretend that we didn't have enough inflation and that it needed to get the rate up to 2%. It's made up target, right? Well, if it's already way above 2%, they can't play that game anymore, right? They can't you know, get away with that BS because no one's going to buy it. And so the bond market is going to get killed, and that's going to be a big problem for the stock market. Because one of the reasons that the stock market gets saved, right, whenever the stock market goes down because of problems in the economy, problems for earnings, well, the Fed rescues the stock market by cutting interest rates, which now pushes up stock valuations and, of course, drives more people into the stock market because they can't get any yield 
in the bond market. Well, that's going to blow up too. So the markets are completely ignoring what is likely to happen. And while they still are looking in the rearview mirror at a playbook that, that is basically obsolete, they're not doing what they should be doing. They should be buying gold when they sell treasuries. They should be selling dollars when they sell treasuries. After all, what the hell is a treasury? But dollars, in fact, they're worse than dollars because they're not dollars today. They're dollars in the future. They're IOUs. They're commitments of the U.S. government to give you dollars in the distant future. Well, who knows what those things are going to be worth in the distant future. I'm not even too confident what they're going to be worth in the near future, let alone 30 years into the future. So when people really start to put the pieces together, uh, the bottom's going to fall out of the dollar. That's going to be even worse for the bond market. Uh, and it's going to you know, explode the price of gold. So in the meantime, you've got this opportunity, as I've been you know, pounding the table on, uh, to buy more gold and silver uh, while you can, while the prices are still low, in my opinion. They're very low. Uh, so, again, I got my reps at Shift Gold. Uh, they're ready. They work. You know, these guys work hard. They, You know, you can get a hold of these guys usually 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Go to our website at shiftgold.com. Somebody's going to pop up to help you, right? There's a little window right away. So we're there, right? We're there to help our uh, people, our customers get gold and silver. So they're standing by for anybody uh, who wants to add to their positions while they still can. And, you know, my 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 guys at your Pacific Asset Management, they're, they don't quite work those hours, but you can get them tomorrow morning, Monday morning. They'll be there uh, to help you if you want to, uh, you know, set up an account with your Pacific Asset Management. If you guys are do-it-yourselfers, all the discount brokers, they've all got uh, my funds. You can buy them no load on all of these uh, all these uh, major, major platforms. Anyway, a few other points that I wanted to discuss before I end the podcast and, and go to the Q&A. So one economic point is I talked about the fires uh, in, in, uh, in Maui and Lahina. And this is another perfect example of, you know, I'm from the government. I'm here to help you. Uh, and how, you know, it's unintended consequences and all this, you know, the heart, you know, legislating from the heart and and, and ignoring ignoring the brain. So all these houses are, are, are burned to the ground. The whole neighborhood has been decimated, right? So it's going to be very difficult for a lot of people who lived in that neighborhood, right? I mean, they've lost so much, right? And some of these people that live there may not want to deal with the hassle of rebuilding a house. You know, in that area, it's going to take a long time. You're going to deal with insurance companies. Some people may be underinsured or not insured at all, but people could be underinsured because construction costs have really gone up in the last few years. So it's possible somebody might have had fire insurance, but they actually can't rebuild based on their the limit of their policy. I don't know. So, and there, you know, there's a lot of older residents that live there. They may not want to deal with this. So what happened was you had people, investors coming in, looking to buy up the properties, saying, hey, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll buy. We'll deal with the reconstruction of the property. We'll deal with the insurance companies. I mean, if you had an insurance policy, you could certainly sell that, right? If somebody buys your property and the house is burned down, they could also take over uh, the insurance policy. 
right? So you would get that value if you were to sell, right? Whatever, whatever your, you know, insurance was, the buyer would pay that. Now, of course, if you didn't have insurance, then, then, you know, then you wouldn't get that, but you had people coming in and they want to, you know, make offers to buy. Now, nobody's got a gun to anybody's head, right? If somebody comes in, some real estate developer wants to start offering to buy people's property, nobody's got a gun to their head forcing them to sell. This is an option. This is like, hey, if you don't want to deal with the headaches yourself, sell it to me. I'll, I'll, I'll take that burden off your back and I'll give you a price. You could take it or leave it, right? And other people are bidding. It's not like there's some guy that has a monopoly on buying property in Maui. I mean, you've got several people that are there interested in these lots that are competing with one another. So there is a market. Uh, and of course, not everybody is going to want to sell. A lot of people are going to, you know, that maybe the, you know, the land's been in the family for a long time and they want to keep it and they're willing to deal with the hassle of, of rebuilding. And of course, you know, while you're rebuilding, you need a place to live that costs money, right? You got to have money to rebuild the house that burned down. And then you have to pay rent someplace else where you're living while you're, you know, you're spending a year or two uh, rebuilding. But now the government, the politicians come in, oh, this is terrible. These vultures are coming in here. We got to stop this. We got to make it illegal for people to come in and buy this property. Now, what they're really doing is making it illegal for the owners to sell. Why? What business is it of the government? Why do you want to limit the opportunities that people have? Because now the government wants to say, no, you shouldn't have that option. Even if you would prefer to sell, even if you're selling at a discount, because you'd rather do that, you're willing to take a discount to not have to deal with a hassle, right? Let somebody else do it. Yes, of course, you're going to sell at a discount because it's a big hassle when you buy. So there's a value there. But the government wants to say, no, the people there are too stupid, right? You homeowners that live in Lahaina, you guys are a bunch of idiots because without the government, people are going to exploit you. You're too dumb to make your own decision over what you want to do with your property. So we're going to save you from making a mistake. Trust us. We're the government. We're here to help you. Right? You, you, th this is typical of the way government responds. They actually make the situation worse. Right? You got people that are, have been harmed by the fires. And the government wants to say, we're going to limit your options. Even if you want to sell, and you've got a lot of people who are willing to buy, we're not going to let you do it. Now, I don't think they've actually passed that law yet. So I think that maybe you're still allowed to sell. But they're also trying to you know, portray these buyers as if they're there to take advantage of people. Again, there, there's no guns. There's no coercion here. The only coercion would be from the government. The government trying to force people not to sell. If the government stays out of it, nobody has to sell, right? People have a choice. That's about living in a free country, right? You get to choose what you want to do. You can choose if you want to sell or you could choose not to sell, right? Freedom of choice, right? These are the type of choices I think that, you know, a guy like Larry Elder, who is a libertarian at heart, but a Republican, like when I ran for Senate, in Connecticut, I ran as a Republican, but my policies were more in tune with a libertarian philosophy. But I know, and Larry Elder knows, that you're not going anywhere if you run as a libertarian, 
right? Now, you know, like one of the things that Larry Elder has the courage to say is that he's opposed to the minimum wage. He wants to get rid of the minimum wage, just like me. See, most of the other Republicans, they're afraid to be against the minimum wage. They don't, they don't have any guts, right? They don't have any principle. They just say, well, we shouldn't raise the minimum wage. Well, why not? If, you're not, if you don't want to get rid of it, then why not raise it? If you believe we should have a minimum wage, why isn't a higher minimum wage better? See, a guy like Larry Elder is consistent. I don't want to raise the minimum wage because I don't want to do any more damage than the minimum wage is already doing. The best thing we can do is get rid of the minimum wage. And one of the reasons that he wants to get rid of the minimum wage is because it hurts African-Americans the most. And he happens to be African-American. So the minimum wage actually does more harm. There is a disparate impact here, right, in the African-American community because they are disproportionately impacted by the minimum wage. And, and so getting rid of it is good if you're worried about you know, trying to close the divide, the wealth gap between white and black. One way to do that is get rid of the minimum wage. So you lower the bottom rung on the job ladder. See, you can't earn higher salaries until you at least get your first job. Your first job lets you get more skills. So you can get your next job and your next job and your next job. You climb up this ladder. And as you get higher and higher on the ladder, you earn more and more money because you become more and more valuable to your employer. How do you get more valuable? You improve your skills and you do that on the job. But what happens if you can't get on that ladder? Because the minimum wage raises the bottom rung above your skill set. Well, you're screwed. You never get on the ladder and so you can never climb up. And so if you get rid of the minimum wage, everybody can get on that ladder, right? Doesn't matter what skills you have. You'll be able, the bottom rung is on the bottom. You're going to start. And then you climb up and you develop more and more skills. And, you know, then now you're, you, you don't need uh, welfare anymore, right? <laughs> you, you don't need all these government supports because now you, you know, you, you've acquired skills and you're, you're more valuable. But again, just like, you know, with, in, with the fires, the politicians, they don't care. Oh, it's just, oh, this is bad. We, we don't want to let these employers exploit the workers. It's not exploitation. The employers don't have a gun to the, to the worker. Hey, take this job or I'm going to shoot you. Right? Just like with, with, uh, with the house, you know, the, the, the buyers aren't going to, you know, at gunpoint force people to sell them a house. If somebody takes a low-paying job, why? Why would they do that? Because it's the highest-paying job they could find, right? If you are a low-skilled worker, there's plenty of employment opportunities out there, and you're going to take the best, the best offer. If the best offer is below the minimum wage, why should the government tell you you can't have that job? Because the government thinks you're a moron. See, the government thinks that the low-skilled workers are a bunch of idiots, and without the government, they're going to get exploited. No, they're not idiots. You know, maybe when it comes to voting, but not when it comes to their own, uh, you know, lives and knowing what's best for them. See, the government thinks they know what's best for everybody else. They don't. The person who knows what's best for himself or herself is that individual. And so, if in a free market. I want to go out. I'm going to look for a job. And the best job I can find is $4 an hour. And I, I tried to find one for $5 an hour, but
but nobody would give me $5 an hour. The highest I can get is four. Why can't I take that job? Why should the government tell me, Peter, you know what? You're better off unemployed. We don't like that job, even though you like it. And that's why, again, you know, when the, the Republicans, if they want to attack the minimum wage, you, you, you never defend the employer. That's a losing argument, even though it's, it's, a, it's a correct argument. Don't say, well, it's the right of the employer. It's not good for small business. You're, no, 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 no. You, you're going to lose. You always got to make it for the worker. The minimum wage hurts the worker. Forget about the businesses. It's all about the worker. The minimum wage limits the worker's ability to sell his labor at the highest price he can get. Just like the government wants to stop homeowners in Hawaii from selling their house for the highest offer they can find, they want to stop workers from selling their labor. They want to limit your rights. As an individual, the most important thing you own is yourself and your own labor. And you need to be in charge, sovereign, of what you do with your labor, right? If I want to take a job, for whatever reason, you know, the government might say, oh, that, that job, it doesn't pay enough. Well, maybe it's more than salary that I want. Maybe I want the experience. Maybe I want to get my foot in the door. It's none of your goddamn business why I want to take this low-paying job. I want it. Let me take it. Because I can't convince anybody to give me more money. But you know what? If I can't convince anybody to give me more number money now and you don't let me get this job, I'm never going to convince anybody. You know what? I want this $4 an hour job and I'm going to work my butt off. And you know what? After three or six months, I'm going to go to my boss and I'm going to say I want to raise. Because you know what? You weren't really sure about me. So you took a shot at four bucks, but you've seen me. You've seen all the hard work I've done. Now you give me a raise or I'm quitting, right? That's that's what's going to happen. But I never have the opportunity to do that if the government doesn't let me get my foot in the door because they want to they want to pretend that that they care, right? They have a big heart and they don't want to let people um, people be exploited. Well, it's not exploitation <laughs> to do that. And of course, you know, they never look at it from the point of view of, of the business. I mean, hiring people, you take a chance. Whenever you hire somebody, you assume all sorts of risks, right? That, that employee can sue you eight ways from Sunday, right? And so it's risky. You, you make a bad hire, you could be paying for it for a long time. Um, and so that, that, that makes it extra difficult. If on top of that, I got to pay this wage that's well above their productivity, one way to encourage an employer to take a chance on you is to be cheap. Right. Not 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 to charge a lot of money. And, you know. That particularly hurts uh, uh, minorities or, you know, l l let's say right, let's say there's a there's an employer who's racist. Right. And he has the choice. He can hire a white guy or he can hire a black guy and he, he's he's racist and, it may, may, you know. What what might entice him into hiring the black guy over the white guy? Well, maybe if the black guy was cheaper, maybe if the wages were a little lower. That's what was happening with the Chinese. That's where the minimum wage came from, actually. Um, a lot of people were losing their jobs to the Chinese because the Chinese 
uh, were working cheaper than the whites. And so the whites knew that the employers were racist against the Chinese, but the employers were also greed, greedy. And their greed uh, would trump their racism. So even though they, they didn't like the Chinese, they couldn't, have, they couldn't not hire them because they were cheaper. And if they didn't hire them, they, would, they wouldn't be competitive. And so they were hiring the Chinese. And so what the white workers did is they, they got a minimum wage. They said, oh, this is unfair. You got to pay the Chinese the same as you pay us. And the minute they got the minimum wage, well, then the racist employees stopped hiring the Chinese and they started hiring uh, the white people. Now, you might say, well, it's, you know, it's, it's not fair that the Chinese have to uh, sell their labor at a discount. Well, it's better than not being hired at all. And, you know, once the Chinese get these jobs and maybe the employers were racist and now they're spending some time with some Chinese and they find out, hey, these Chinese aren't that bad. You know, the same thing would happen with African-Americans. I mean, not that I think that you have today a lot of racist uh, employers. I mean, there's probably some out there uh, and not nearly as many as there used to be. But it's kind of like, you know, think about it. This is I think it was a Milton Friedman analogy or it may, it may even be a Larry Elder analogy. I can't I can't remember who, who I read this in a, in, in a book. It might have been Larry Elder's book, I remember. But you go into a supermarket and you get sirloin steak and you get chopped meat, right? Let's say they're the same price. No one's going to buy the chopped meat. You're going to buy sirloin steak. It's the same price as chopped meat. I mean, what chance does chopped meat have in a supermarket if the same price as as steak? You're not going to buy it. You're not going to buy a hamburger. If you can buy a steak, everybody likes steak better than hamburger. Why do more people buy hamburger? Because it's cheaper. That's why we they sell a lot of hamburger, because the price is lower. People, even though they don't like it as much, they buy it because it's cheaper, right? The same thing works with these, uh, you know, minimum wage or uh, equal pay for equal work or all these anti-discrimination laws. Uh, you, you know, you it actually backfires, right? Because if you force the butcher to charge the same uh, uh, price for hamburger as it does for steak, no one's buying any hamburger, right? So there's going to be a, a big surplus of hamburger. Like that's like unemployment, right? The government legislates unemployment into existence with its laws. And I've done all sorts of podcasts on on, on how all these well-intentioned laws backfire. Uh, but you know that the thing that was going on in uh in 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 hawaii is just another example you know i mentioned again in my other podcast you know with uh um uh, aoc when she finally notices that we don't have any of these sunscreens in america uh that they have in europe and all over the world because our politicians think we're a bunch of idiots and we're not smart enough to decide for ourselves if we want to buy sunscreen no no we need big daddy government to make sure that the sunscreen is safe. Meanwhile, the rest of the world is protected from skin cancer, and we're not because our government thinks that they, they they know more than we do. You know, the one place that I think you should limit individuals uh, is in voting. That's where I don't think they quite have the knowledge. I think, unfortunately, right that that was the original intent of our republic that not everybody was vote would vote. I think people should be able to choose who they want to sell their houses to what jobs they want to take, what sunscreen they want to buy. See, I think the government should get out of the way because I think they are smart enough to do that. This is the irony. All these Democrats think that we're too dumb, right, to know what jobs we want. We're too dumb 
to decide what kind of you know products we want to buy. We're too dumb to know whether or not we should accept an offer on our house. But we're smart enough to vote, right? We're smart enough to figure out who should lead the country and who should be enacting our laws. But we're too dumb to do all this common sense stuff. See, that's the irony. I, I trust people to do what's right for themselves. I don't trust them to do what's right for me. That's what voting is all about, right? They're trying to do something to other people. And generally what they're trying to do is steal from other people because some politician is promising, vote for me and I'll give you something for free. And so they vote for them. I, that's what I want to limit people doing. I want people making decisions about what to do with their own money. I don't want them making decisions about what I should do with my money, right? We should all be left alone to make our own decisions and not have to rely on, on, on government to do it for us. Anyway, <laughs> I don't know how far Larry would go. These are, these are obviously my positions, uh, not his. Let's wait for the debate and see uh, the issues that he wants to, uh, that he wants to uh, bring out. But anyway, that's it. I'm going to wrap up today's podcast. I want to save my voice. We got the Q&A portion coming up. Uh, I might take five or 10 minute break. That will also give people a chance to sign up at shiftradio.com slash premium. If you're not yet a premium member, it'll also give you about 10 minutes to go to larryelder.com and donate a buck to make sure that we put Larry over the top and get him on that debate stage on Wednesday. Thanks everybody in advance for doing uh, Larry and me that favor. And I'll see you in the Q&A. Thank you.